Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get into our show, we're really hoping you can give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show, and now it can help you win a signed copy of my book, John Turner, An Intimate Biography of Canada's 17th Prime Minister. Let us know that you've left a rating or review by sending us a screenshot of it at onpoliticsattvo.org, and you'll be entered in our giveaway. We'll announce the winner at the end of June. Best of luck. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, landlords and tenants may want to get along better, but it's hard given the poor state of the landlord-tenant board, which is supposed to resolve their disputes. The Auditor General loses a lawsuit against Laurentian University. The new NDP member from Hamilton Centre has a Twitter problem yet again. And what did Steve and I write about last week? Uh, find out on another spine-tingling edition of Your Column, My Column. Ooh, it's Tuesday, May the 9th, 2023, so let's get to it. Hey, pal, how's it going? Uh, good, good. You know, I had a, had a lovely weekend, but I, I've got a bone to pick with you, sir. Uh-oh, what did I do now? Well, it's it's your preferences in sports franchises. Your Boston Red Sox were quite uh, unkind to my Toronto Blue Jays, and uh, frankly, I feel like I and other residents of this city are owed an apology. <laughs> <laughs> Can I let you in on—this on th- This is actually true. I, I obviously love it when the Red Sox win yes. and, and didn't expect much of it to happen this year. I always feel a little bit guilty when it happens against the Blue Jays. I really do. So take that to the bank for what it's worth. But, uh, you know, the team that I was absolutely convinced was going to come last this year is actually in third place and doing not badly. And the Yankees are in last. And on that, we can all Ontarians unite, right? Uh, Yes. And I'm teaching that to my child because we're raising them orthodox. (laughs) Good for you. Good. You're doing your duty as you should. Let's do a little Ontario Liberal leadership update off the top here, if we can. Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie gave her strongest signal yet that she is about to announce for OLP leader. The new leader will be crowned December 2nd. The mayor of Mississauga was also at the Liberal Party of Canada annual convention this past weekend. And apparently a lot of people continue to urge her to get into the race. No announcement yet, but if I were a betting person... And I'm not, but if I were, I'd say the announcement is not too far off that she is in. Uh, Yeah, we expect some more news this week. Frankly, by the time you listen to this podcast, there may already be uh, more news about uh, people officially, officially getting their uh, campaigns underway. Uh, But the the minivan caucus, as we lovingly uh, call it, and as the premier uh, refers to it, uh, is about to lose one of its MPPs. Uh, Liberal Mitzi Hunter of Scarborough Guildwood is expected to announce uh, tomorrow that she is quitting Queen's Park uh, after 10 years as an MPP so she can devote herself entirely to her run for mayor of Toronto. A sign of how much politics have taken their toll on the Liberal Party, it it occurred to me a few months ago that Mitzi Hunter is 
one of the most senior MPPs she in is, the caucus. Absolutely. Right? And yeah. now it's John Fraser will be the last one standing from the 2013 set of by-elections. Anyway, Ms. Hunter will need the added focus uh, of uh, focusing on her mayoral race if she's going to be more competitive. There was a Main Street research uh, poll from last Friday. Uh, there's been some others. They all more or less agree among decided voters. Uh, you see Olivia Chow, the former uh, New Democrat MPP uh, and former Toronto City Councilor, well ahead in the mayoral race with 31%. Uh, former City Councilor Anna Bailao at 17%. Current City Councilor Josh Matlow, 15%. Former Police Chief Mark Saunders, 12%. The soon-to-be former MPP Mitzi Hunter at nine, current city councillor Brad Bradford at six. So depending on which poll you read, Hunter not at the very farthest back of the pack, but definitely uh, relative to uh, certainly Chow and some of the other uh, contenders, she's pretty far behind, has quite a steep hill to climb. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the story among decided voters. Among all voters, including those who haven't figured out yet who they want to vote for, Olivia Chow's toughest competitor at 30 percent. Remember, Chow's at 31. Who's in second place at 30 percent? The answer is undecided. Now, for what it's worth, I am very unpersuaded about how firm these numbers are. I suspect Chow is in first place because she has the highest name recognition as a, as you pointed out, JMM, longtime former city councillor, former member of parliament, former mayoral candidate, and, of course, the wife of the late former NDP leader Jack Layton. There have not been any major candidate debates yet. There will be in about two and a half weeks. Yours truly has the honor of uh, moderating that one for the Toronto Region Board of Trade. After that, I suspect the polls will be much more worth looking at at that stage. Yeah, definitely we'll be paying more attention. I mean, even last week's polls, I would say we were still seeing so much noise. They generally agreed on where Chow stood uh, at the, the front of the pack, but uh, there's so much disagreement about who's in second, who's in third. Um, I, I would treat all of these polls as... Um, thematic and maybe not super accurate. <laughs> Although one person did get some good news this week, and that was Mark Saunders, the former police chief, because Stephen Holliday, another Toronto City Councillor, announced he would not be getting into the race. Stephen Holliday represents Etobicoke at City Hall. Let me think, would there be another Etobicoke politician who might have put a bug in Stephen Holliday's ear not to run against the only Self-declared conservative candidate in the race. Now, let me, John Michael, I'm just thinking here, who might, who might have grabbed him by the elbow and said, Stephen, I've known your father. I've known you for a long time. Who do you think might have done uh, that? I, I suspect you might be delicately alluding to the premier who has some coattails in Etobicoke politics. I might very well be referring to the MPP for Etobicoke North, whose name I believe is Doug Ford. There we go. Anyway, we do love your feedback here on the On Poly podcast, so why not write to us at onpolitics at tvo.org. JMM, reach into the mailbag. What have we got this week? We've got a question from listener Wayne who asks, JMM, if you were to be on the show for 25 more years, who would be the premier that you are obliged to mention in every episode? <laughs> ah, I love this. I love. First of all, I love that he calls you JMM. Yes. That's nice. I wonder if this is Wayne Gretzky. Um, <laughs> maybe not. I do love the mischievous nature of this question, Wayne, so well done to you. Wayne is presumably teasing me because I do tend to mention Bill Davis, the 18th Premier of Ontario, a lot. 
in part because I wrote a book about him and in part because he became premier when I was 10 years old and he stayed till I was 24. So his most formative years in politics were my most formative years growing up in Ontario. But yeah, let's do what Wayne says here. Let's turn the tables. Who are you going to mention semi-nonstop in 25 years when you and I are still doing this? I would have to go with Mike Harris, if I, if you're asking me to, to guess. Uh, like you, like Mike Harris was premier when I was in uh, school, and it was really when I started to become aware of the importance of provincial politics, because uh, those of us who were in high school uh, during the Harris years know that that was a, a tumultuous time, let's say. Uh, but I also think that in a lot of ways, I mean, it is 2023. And in a lot of ways, this is still the province that Mike Harris built, Uh, you know, not in every respect, but in uh, lots of areas. And in particular, you know, you know, I'm a a municipal policy dork. Uh, Lots of areas of municipal policy still fundamentally the framework that Mike Harris left uh, in uh, when he left power. And then when the liberals took over in 2003, they tinkered with some stuff. But, you know, uh, huge parts of the province still basically unchanged. So, yeah, I I would say if you're asking me today, Mike Harris. It's interesting you say that because the premise of the Bill Davis biography that I wrote whenever it was a few years ago was it's still Bill Davis's Ontario. And the governing style of this current incarnation of the PC party, I suggest, would support that. But, you know, this may be one of those instances where there's plenty of evidence to support both of our claims. So it may well be the generation gap between us makes me say Davis, makes you say Harris. And uh, I don't know, maybe we should put it out to the listeners and let them vote. Is it Bill Davis's Ontario or Mike Harris's Ontario or somebody else's Ontario? Well, and I mean, depending on how the next election goes, I mean, as it is, I think Doug Ford will be uh, remembered as a very consequential premier, more consequential in some ways than you know other premiers we've had by virtue of having served eight years if he wins a third term. I mean, that's not out of the realm of possibility. Um, you know, uh, he, the next podcast uh, host here could be talking about how it's actually Doug Ford's Ontario. <laughs> okay. If you'd like to ask about anything regarding this podcast, please give us a shout at onpolitics at tvo.org. That's onpolitics at tvo.org. And now we're on to issue one. What was most disturbing was how these delays affected real people on both sides of the landlord and tenant relationship. We heard from more than 4,000 people in the course of this investigation, and their stories were extremely compelling. When landlords and tenants have disputes they can't resolve themselves, they're supposed to go to the landlord-tenant board, where speedy justice (laughs) apparently is supposed to await them. Trouble is that landlord-tenant board isn't working very well at all these days, And JMM, how do we know that? Uh, Because the Ontario Ombudsman tells us so. Uh, We love us some independent officers of the legislature here on the podcast. And the Ombudsman is one like the Auditor General and the Financial Accountability Officer, who we've referred to, I I think, more frequently on this podcast. Uh, But the Ombudsman's role is in some ways broader than the Auditor or the FAO's because it's it's less directly focused on money and, uh, you know, getting value for tax dollars and can ask more basic questions like, are Ontario being treated well by their public services and can they rely on those services when they need them? And the short answer from Ombudsman uh, Paul Dubé's latest report is no, at least not where the Landlord and Tenant Board is concerned. Uh, Hearings that once took days to arrange now take months and the backlog of cases is in the thousands. Uh, That means that whether you are a landlord or tenant, if something goes wrong, you are looking at potentially 
months or years of being in limbo waiting for your case to be heard. What does the ombudsman have to say about how it got to this predicament? Well, I think anybody who's been uh, watching the housing space would tell you that uh, the board has had problems for years, uh, including before the Tories won in 2018. Uh, but according to the ombudsman, things really took a turn after Doug Ford became premier because the new government was really slow off the mark to appoint new members to uh, the LTB. Uh, that meant that vacancies didn't get filled and the number of cases the board could hear uh, started to shrink. Then COVID hit, and that caused all sorts of chaos in the rental system, and the LTB was no exception. Uh, and even coming out of COVID, the board's transition to online hearings for all but exceptional cases has caused problems because a lot of tenants who end up before the board don't have reliable internet access. So the Ombudsman's report uh, does suggest that things are getting a little better in the last, you know, six to 12 months in that the government has belatedly appointed new members to the board to help shrink the backlog. Uh, but he still has over 60 substantial recommendations for the government to uh, adopt to improve things further. And what do we know about the impact that all of this has had on people I guess both landlords and tenants who try to bring their cases to the board. You know, he had a lot to say, and I really think you can see the difference here between the job that the ombudsman does and the jobs that uh, other officers like the auditor or the FAO do. Uh, not so purely focused on financial costs. And, you know, the ombudsman is able to spell out things like the human cost when government fails. You've got small landlords uh, driven into near poverty because they can't evict a tenant who simply stops paying rent or starts making violent threats against other tenants. Then you've got uh, tenants uh, themselves living in precarious positions with abusive landlords who can't get any relief from the only body that's actually able to deal with this. And, uh, you know, it's it's not just about dysfunction at uh, <laughs> an opaque and somewhat obscure government tribunal. It's, it's about people's real lives being hugely disrupted. Hmm. This is the point where I come in and say, you know why we have an ombudsman in the province of Ontario, right? Is it going to refer to a premier who's already had one reference uh, in this podcast It so just far? might be the case that the Davis <laughs> government appointed and created the ombudsman's position in the first place. And the very first one was Dan Hill Sr., father of the guy who sang, sometimes when we touch, the honesty's too much. Anyway, I'll stop singing. On to issue two. We have another update on the ongoing dispute between Northern Ontario's most significant and largest university and the Auditor General of Ontario, who has been trying for a very long time to get information out of that post-secondary institution. JMM, I'm going to ask you to give us some of the background as to what the AG wanted and why. But just before you do so, let me do this full disclosure thing. I used to have a ceremonial role at Laurentian. I was the chancellor there until the place financially blew up, and I resigned when that did happen. Anyway, with that in place... Pick up the ball and run if you would. Right. So uh, Auditor General Bonnie Lissick was asked by all parties at the legislature to audit Laurentian University after it uh, went into creditor protection uh, and to figure out how it all went so badly. Uh, as part of her audit, Laurentian started claiming solicitor-client privilege protected some of the documents that uh, Lissick and her team at the uh, Auditor General's office wanted to see. Laurentian refused to turn them over. This is 
pretty unusual. Uh, the, the Auditor General's work regularly involves privileged documents in government. And as a, a normal part of that business, the office is usually able to work out some kind of agreement or some kind of cooperation where you know they might be able to see the documents in question, but they aren't able to reveal them to the public, that kind of thing. Here, Laurentian just straight up refused. So the Auditor General decided to go to court to try to get access to some of that behind-the-scenes info from Laurentian. The courts have now ruled. What did they say? We now have uh, two decisions from a lower court and now the uh, most recent one from the Provincial Court of Appeals saying, in essence, no can do. Uh, the principle of solicitor-client privilege is so important to the Canadian judicial system that even the, the very strong powers that the Auditor General has in law to audit the public sector don't override that. Uh, the courts did say that if MPPs wanted to, the legislature could pass a law allowing the Auditor General to uh, override solicitor-client privilege or, or modify that privilege. Uh, and in fact, uh, at least one province has done that, but Ontario has not. Uh, in the language of the Court of Appeal, the law would have to be clear and unambiguous ambiguous to weaken privilege. And uh, the current legislation, according to the province's highest court, just doesn't clear that bar. Okay. Back to Laurentian here. The president who was basically accused by his critics of driving Laurentian off a financial cliff to reduce costs, he has retired. The university is looking for a new president. It's got a new board. The province has stepped in to purchase some of Laurentian's excess land in order to put some cash in the university's coffers. Is the university now back on solid financial footing? Do we know? It certainly seems to be in better shape than it was when it entered creditor protection, but I mean, it would have to be, right? Um, it would be hard to overstate just how damaging the bankruptcy proceeding was in Sudbury. And really, it rippled across the Northeast in a lot of ways. Uh, lots of people lost their jobs, and in many cases, uh, they left Sudbury altogether, including you know people who were uh, researchers in these departments uh, that, that simply got wound down in some cases. Um, so even if Laurentian is, is on a more sustainable growth trajectory now, uh, and, and that's, I would submit, still an if, not something we know for sure, um, it would still take years for the school to rebuild what was lost. Uh, obviously, we are talking about this story because of the Auditor General's lawsuit, but I think the broader provincial story here is that Queen's Park really, really wants to make sure that something like this uh, never happens again. And that is, in fact, the motivation or was the motivation for the audit in the first place. Amen to that. And on to issue three. The Twitter travails of the newest member of the legislature apparently just refused to go away. Sarah Jama recently won a by-election in Hamilton Centre for the NDP, but almost instantly she became surrounded in controversy because she has some very strong views on the Middle East. She is very pro-Palestinian and very anti the current Israeli government, like I should add, many Jewish Canadians. In any event, some of her public statements and tweets were considered so over the line during the campaign that the NDP apologized before by-election day and when she was welcomed to Queen's Park after her victory, yes, all the members did stand to welcome her, as is the tradition, but not everybody applauded. For example, Cabinet Ministers Prabhmeet Sarkaria and Paul Calandra and the Solicitor General, Michael Kersner, who was the only Jewish member of Cabinet, they all stood, but noticeably did not applaud. Now, the NDP brass apparently told Sarah Jama that she should really focus on her critic role at the legislature and leave Middle East politics behind her. But last week, she did not take their advice. 
that's right. Uh, JAMA retweeted a tweet about a, a Palestinian, uh, I mean, self-described uh, activist, but somebody who's, uh, you know, part of a group that is on the Canadian government's terrorist watch list. Uh, JAMA then deleted the retweet after the fact, seemed to briefly delete her uh, whole Twitter account. It seemed to disappear there for a while. Uh, the NDP then came out with a statement saying that, you know, the, the tweet or the retweet does not represent the views of the party or JAMA. Uh, and then that release was actually the first I realized what was going on because I had missed most of this on Twitter because I'm trying to stay off of Twitter more these days. Good for you. Well, I, I, I must say I'm always kind of amused when parties come out and say, you know, the, the, the statements or the actions of our member don't reflect our party or that member. I mean, this tweet pretty obviously does represent Sarah Jama's views, and she's made no secret of the fact that she is supportive of Palestinian causes and has had in the past some rather inflammatory things to say about Israel, which she and the party have apologized for. Now, there's an open question as to whether the NDP as a party has an anti-Semitism problem. This is not the first time this has been referred to. A uh, couple of points worth noting. Former NDP Premier Bob Ray left the NDP almost 20 years ago because he saw what, in his view, was increasing coziness between Palestinian extremists and too many members of the NDP. Again, criticizing Israel, obviously fair game. Plenty of Israelis and Canadian Jews do it, so there's no issue there. But some New Democrats go further than that, and that's what's prompted this issue to continue to hang around. We should also note that Marit Stiles, the new NDP leader, is married to a guy named Jordan Berger, who is Jewish. So there's certainly no suggestion that the leader is anti-Semitic, but there certainly is a suggestion from some members of this legislature that the member from Hamilton Center is. And for what it's worth, uh, the issue doesn't go away every time Sarah Jama puts something out on Twitter yet again about Middle East politics. Uh, you know, we're talking about Sarah Jama because of the immediate uh, story that happened uh, last week about the assertion that, the, you know, the party might have a problem. Like we saw this with Joel Harden as well uh, last year. Uh, and, you know, this is all a shame uh, because Jama is, you know, the first ever MPP who uh, uses a wheelchair to get around uh, at her election. She could be using uh, this platform and, and her formal critic role with the NDP uh, to bring attention to disability issues, uh, something that the province uh, really direly needs. Uh, that is her role uh, in the NDP uh, shadow cabinet. Uh, it seems like... Uh, now, obviously, I mean, she can continue to uh, shine a light on uh, Middle Eastern issues, and I don't think there's any reason to stop her to do that. Uh, but it does become problematic both for uh, herself and her work and her party when she retweets stuff about people on terrorist watch lists. This is all somewhat ironic because this is actually Jewish Heritage Month in the province of Ontario, and the NDP put out a press release on Friday saying all the right things about taking a stand against anti-Semitism, and yet Jewish community groups would say the party still has a problem in its own midst with one of its own MPPs. Here's a feature we introduced last week, and it seemed to go okay, so we're going to inflict it on you again. It's called Your Column, My Column, and it's just meant to be a chance for JMM and I to remind you that we also write columns for the website tvo.org. And last week, John Michael wrote about the problems of the Landlord and Tenant Board because, as we talked about earlier, Ontario's Ombudsman released a report saying there are a lot of problems there. Right. And I, I won't rehash uh, everything that we spoke about uh, earlier in the podcast. But, you know, my point in that column was simply to say that, you know, uh, keeping the 
tribunals of Ontario working. This is supposed to be like the bare minimum we should expect from our government. And that's just, you know, keeping the lights on, keeping the machinery uh, running. And whatever you would like to see government do uh, in the rest of the world, whatever more ambitious government you might like to see or maybe not see, like we do need to get the basics working first. Now, Steve, you wrote about a guy and an agency that we have focused on quite a bit on this podcast because of the good work it does, uh, Peter Weltman and the Financial Accountability Office. What's the story there? Well, the story is that Peter Weltman's five-year term expired last Friday, and uh, he has been trying to get the attention of the three-person committee of the legislature that has to make a decision about whether to rehire him or let him go. And apparently he's had no luck doing that at all. Uh, The date has come. The date has gone. His contract has expired. And there's no indication of whether they want him back or whether they want to let him go. Um, You know, to read between the lines here, I would totally understand why the government might might want to let him go. Uh, He's done reports which have used uh, what we call facts, empirically provable facts, uh, that the government's projections are off or overly optimistic, and presumably they don't like being told that. But why the official opposition NDP is allowing Weltman's term to expire without doing anything about it is really curious. This is one of those jobs where the opposition parties uh, really appreciate the work uh, that Peter Weltman and his team do because they get a lot of their material for question period from the FAO's reports, be they about government spending or the effects of climate change on provincial assets such as roads or parks or what it'll take to eliminate the backlog of diagnostic or surgical services thanks to the pandemic. You know, that, that, those reports from the FAO are quite valuable and the NDP has kind of been AWOL on this. Now, usually when you do your job well, and you have the option of being rehired, you are. Well, here's the case where someone's done a good job, and he can't really even get an answer from anyone on whether they want him back. So both of those columns, John Michaels on the Landlord-Tenant Board and mine on the Financial Accountability Office, are on the website, tvo.org. And Matthew, will you, uh, will you be a chum and uh, leave a link to both of them in the show notes? Give me some indication that you're prepared to do that, Matthew. And that is the On Poly Podcast for this Tuesday, May 9th, 2023. Please remember to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe to them at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I riff on about the coronation of King Charles III and whether there's any appetite in Ontario or Canada to dispense with the monarchy. Should we do a spoiler alert here? Let's do a spoiler alert. No. (laughs) It doesn't appear to be. No, and... uh... Yeah, but it was a, an odd start to my Saturday morning when I was up early and realized, oh, yeah, there's something happening. What is it? What is it? Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. The coronation. Uh, not usually up that early. You got to say, whether you like the monarchy or you don't, they do coronations well. Yeah, well, it's uh, a pretty swank shindig. <laughs> <laughs> that's one way to put it. Yes, indeed. Any feedback you have, we are happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. You can write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shahir Tajvidi. Production support from Carla Lucetta and Jonathan Hallowell. Until next Tuesday, everybody, bye-bye. See you next week, everyone. <laughs>